Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Heidi Brown, author of The Introverted Lawyer and Untangling Fear in Lawyering, about preparing for your moot court experience. Professor Brown is the Director of Legal Writing and Associate Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. She's written several books and is skilled and schooled in how to prepare for oral arguments. In this conversation, she shares her own experiences and gives very specific tricks on how to succeed for what is an anxiety-provoking day for any of us going into our first moot court experience. Before we get started, I want to remind you that we are available on all platforms, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd like us, rate us on any of the platforms on which you listen to us. As always, you can reach us at lawtofact at gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact. Here's my discussion with Professor Brown. So I'm thrilled that you um, are joining me, especially at this time of the semester, because now's the time when everyone's getting ready for their um, oral arguments. And um, it works so well with your newest book, Untangling Fear and Lawyering, and um, also about, you know, the introverted lawyer. Yes. So, uh, which is hard to believe that you think you were an introverted lawyer, but I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so I was reading some of the um, stuff you've written, and one of the things I thought was particularly useful, and I presume this is in your book, The Untangling, um, Untangling Fear and Lawyering, is some of the tips to prepare yourself for stress, because I thought what was interesting was that everyone can say to you, don't be scared, don't be nervous, but that's not going to make a difference. So what would you suggest for students who are anticipating kind of anxiety as they stand before a moot judge? Sure. So a lot of what we hear when we are anticipating a performance event, our message is sort of like what you just said, don't be scared or things like everybody's nervous, it's fine, or just fake it till you make it. And I tried all of that advice for years, just prepare and you'll be fine. And none of that ever worked for me. So what did work was starting to really listen to the mental messages that I was playing on a soundtrack in my head before every performance event as a lawyer and even as a law professor too. Every time I walked into the classroom, I was playing these messages in my head about my ability. And and also physically, I was doing things physically that were exacerbating my anxiety and my, my fear response rather than managing my energy and oxygen and blood flow in a productive manner. So what I recommend for students is to kind of take some time to listen to what are you hearing in your, in your brain when you're preparing for to speak in class, a, a challenging Socratic method query or an oral argument. What exactly are you hearing in your mind? And it's, it's a little touchy-feely to, to go there, but it's important for us to realize, oh, wait, these are just messages that I'm remembering from high school or uh, maybe a coach in college or my first job or um, a, a well-meaning family member or a peer or a friend. But those messages aren't always helpful for the performance event we're about to do in law school. So for me, it was really helpful to hear, okay, what am I telling myself? Is that message really valid for today's performance in this classroom, in this courtroom, in this boardroom. And most of the time you realize, no, you know, this is, this is my high school teacher, something that, that I heard and maybe misinterpreted or, or either way ingrained in my mind and repeated years and years and years. So wait, I'm, I just, so, so what would be an example of something that you heard that you want from a high school teacher, say, or a college coach that you want to dis- discount? 
So I like to share sort of my experiences because I had to go back and really transcribe what I was telling myself. And I recall very vividly, um, again, a well-meaning teacher, but this was elementary school in my science class. I, I was a very quiet student in school, but on this particular day, we were doing an experiment outside and it was with a magnifying glass. I write about this in my book, but it was a magnifying glass and a piece of paper and the sunshine. And very uncharacteristically, I shouted out loud, oh, wow, if you, if you catch the sunlight in the magnifying glass and direct it towards the paper, the paper catches on fire. And the teacher, I'm not really sure why, but kind of swooped over and grabbed my magnifying glass and said, oh, you just ruined the experiment for everybody. And I have a very robust blushing response. So I turned beet red, was very embarrassed and sort of censored myself in class after that. And I don't know why this sticks in my mind, but that particular experience really has stuck with me over the years. And later that same year, the same teacher um, did something else. We had a secret Santa gift exchange in my, in my little school. And I was all excited because the biggest gift under the tree was for me, which was very uncharacteristic also. <laughs> and I said out loud to my best friend, oh, wow, look at that, look at that gift. And the same teacher said, in not so nice a tone, said, um, you know, the best things in life come in small packages. And again, I turned really red and and I was afraid to speak in that class, even though I was a really good student all mm-hmm. through elementary school and high school. So it might sound like a minor thing. It happened you know, decades ago, but it made me, I now realize situations like that with other teachers and other coaches, just the way my personality is structured, I interpreted that as my voice doesn't matter. Or my, my opinions don't matter. And I dragged all of that into law school and was really afraid to have an opinion about the law or complicated legal subjects. And again, I remember a, a situation from my first year of law school in my civil procedure class, which I was very prepared for. I had highlighted the rules and highlighted my textbook and I had flowcharts and note cards. But when I was cold called in class, I got confused in my head about the answer to the question about diversity jurisdiction. And I answered the question under the very flawed premise that Portland and Seattle are in the same state. <laughs> so I <laughs> made a mistake about, even though, you know, I knew that was wrong. As it was a geography, so don't worry. <laughs> yes. Um, and my classmates kind of chuckled and the, the teacher didn't shame me, but I felt ashamed. And, and so it's situations like that, that I was through 15 years of law practice, bringing into every performance scenario. Oh, I'm going to like you're going to turn red, you're going to make a mistake. People are going to think you're not that smart. You know, what are you doing here? You don't deserve to be here. All of which are just terrible things to reinforce, but I just very naturally the, the way my personality is structured or just messages that I've either interpreted or misinterpreted over the years turned into this performance anxiety. Hmm. It's really important for me to untangle that. I like that word, not just push through it, not just, you know, pretend it's not there and, and just do it. It was really critically important for me to listen to those not so fun messages, realize that they were from way in the past. I was qualified. I am qualified to have opinions. They might not be perfect, but I'm allowed to express myself in my authentic way and I don't need to fake it. So it really helped me reframe every performance scenario just by understanding 
that those messages are outdated and I have the power to recreate my, my messages to myself about ability. That, that's brilliant. The messages are outdated and you have the power to recreate yourself. That is a perfect mantra, especially as you go into a new experience, right? So don't base your, your performance that you anticipated in a new experience on things that happened in past experiences. I never thought of it that way. That's really interesting. I love it. And when you think about great performers, um, you know, like Madonna, for instance, they, mm-hmm. they love reinventing themselves and, right. and great performers, great athletes, great singers, great dancers. I mean, a lot of what we do in the law is, is delivering not a fake performance, but a performance. And so if we start to treat ourselves like artists or athletes or other non-lawyer personas, why, if they can reinvent themselves, why can't we in a positive way? Yeah. And, and the converse is true too, because the people who don't reinvent themselves either don't grow or become stale. Yes. So, um, wow. Very interesting. I like that. All right. So what are the new messages we should tell ourselves as we walk into the, <laughs> I need a script. <laughs> well, I have a script because sure. as, as oh, great. I'm open about, I struggle with this on a daily basis. So for me, even walking into the classroom, even though I know what I'm talking about and I'm prepared, I get, I get nervous. And Speaking of faculty meetings, I get nervous. <laughs> so I have sort of a, a mantra that I tell myself because the, the, the old outdated messages still creep in sometimes. So for me, it's important to realize, oh, wait, that's just the old message again. And I like to joke about the, the firefighter mantra, stop, drop, and roll. So uh-huh. when I hear those old messages, I think, oh, wait, I just hear this again. I'm going to stop. I'm going to drop and roll, and I'm going to start my new messages. So for me, those sound something like this. I'm substantively prepared. I've done the work. And and just like our students are substantively prepared for oral arguments, they've written the brief, they've done the work. I tell myself the same thing. I'm prepared for this class, or I'm prepared Hmm. for this presentation, or I'm prepared for this meeting. I've done the work. I'm entitled to have an opinion. I'm allowed to say it in my own voice, even if I turn red. <laughs> who cares if I turn red or blush? Or uh, who cares if I'm, I have to repeat myself or it doesn't go perfectly? My words are important and I have something to say and I'm, I'm doing the best I possibly know how. And I literally will repeat that stuff. And again, even though it sounds a little touchy-feely, it's, for me, it's a 30-second reboot I can catch myself from the, the negativity, remind myself how much work I've put into preparing, and just run through that little list. I'm prepared. I work hard. I deserve to be here. I have a voice. And then it just kind of resets me on the path. And then mm-hmm. I can combine that with the physical things that, that I do to slow down my heart rate or make my breathing more measured. And so combining the mental with the physical is a really amazing way to transform the way we approach performance. And that makes a lot of sense. Actually, sometimes when I'm teaching, I'll stop and make my students meditate because just breathing. But one of the things that you touched upon, um, which I try to communicate too, is, you know, about being prepared is that I try to remind students that they know the topic better than any of the lawyers walking in to the um, walking into the room. And when I applied for my job at Pace and I had to give a presentation to the entire faculty, I purposely picked a topic 
that I thought no one else would know about, which was New York City Charter Revision Commission, which was something I was working on at the time, until, of course, a politician walked in the room. <laughs> and then I was a little bummed. But, but no, seriously, I think that that's really true. When you've immersed yourself in a particular topic that the judges have just learned from one bench brief, one read of one bench brief, they don't know it as well as you do. Yes, and I try to really empower my students that the work they put in in not only writing the brief, but finding the cases, finding the statutes, breaking them down, reading the cases, talking about them in class. I actually have my students write the brief from opposite points of view. So they write a brief from one point of view, and then they switch sides and write it from the other point of view. So they really do know these cases better than anybody else in that room, besides maybe their their student counterpart, who also is equally... Right, right, right. There's something so amazing when, when, when a law student realizes that even though they've only been doing this for three months or six months or a year or two years, depending on where they are in their, their path in law school, they know a lot of information. And more importantly, they know how to apply rules and, and they're learning a new language about the law and, and they don't have to do it perfectly, but they do know substantively more than they think they do. Mm-hmm. And, and they can apply those, those facts and rules to their own life experiences and, and enrich their understanding even more. So it's really important for them to realize, just like you said, they absolutely know more about that case than the judges do usually. And they can own that confidence and own that hard work that they did to get themselves in that room in the first place. Hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about the physical, because one of the things you reference in some of your work is um, Professor Amy Cuddy's TED Talk and about the power stance. Can you just talk a little bit about the physical and the power stance? Yes, what I had to realize with my own processing, my own anxiety or fear towards performance was that I was carrying a lot of that in my physical body and everything that I used to do that I thought was helpful was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I, I kind of make fun of myself in my writing too, about how because of my turning red and blushing and my neck would break out in hives, I used to go into every deposition or courtroom with a turtleneck or a scarf wrapped around my neck thinking that I was, by hiding the the redness or the blush, I was helping myself. But actually, all that did was make me hot and sweaty and and suffocated. That did not help my brain work. It did not Mm -hmm. help me breathe. It did not help me balance the energy. So when I started researching this, I did come across Professor Amy Cuddy's TED Talk about power poses. And I also read a lot of other books and resources about standing in a balanced stance like an athlete. And I started experimenting with, with Professor Cuddy's power poses and, and the athlete stance and realizing that my natural reaction when I get nervous is to make myself small. I fold up, I t- tell my students like a paper airplane or origami, my body just protects itself. And that's a natural response, but it's unhelpful in the situation. And when I started experimenting with standing or even sitting, if you're in a meeting and you can't just stand up and do your Wonder Woman power pose in the middle of a faculty meeting or the <laughs> classroom or, or the courtroom, um, although you can do it in your mind, uh, it really helped me to practice standing at a podium or sitting in a chair in a balanced stance, uncrossing your legs, uncrossing your arms, putting your shoulders back, sitting up straight, and just those subtle movements for me, really helped me breathe better, calm my heart down a little bit, and 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 just sort of own my physical power a little bit more. And then I realized when I did that, 
maybe three or four times in a row just to make myself consciously focus on it, it really did slow down my, my fast beating heart and I was able to speak more clearly. And so now that's part of my, my ritual. Um, I have sort of a pregame ritual I do before every performance. My students will see me standing outside the classroom in my, in my superhero power pose before <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a, a, a talk on, on my books or even getting ready to speak at a faculty meeting. I run through my, my repertoire. I, I stand or sit, I breathe. Many times as I know the, the pressure's kind of coming towards me to speak, I'll realize, oh, wait, I've crossed my legs again. I've hunched my shoulders down. I'm trying to hide. But then I'll just open back up and, and just run through that repertoire, that, that ritual a little bit. And just taking ownership of it, regardless of whether it's really slowing your heart rate down or, or facilitating your energy flow better. For me, it's just about knowing I have more control. And combining that with the conscious mental messages and the conscious subtle movements and how you hold your, your physical self makes a huge difference. And I've seen it work. It, it works for me. It's, it's helped me immensely feel more powerful and confident in, in a performance scenario. That's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, even though this is audio, we're actually doing this through video chat, and it's hard for me to believe that you suffer from any of these types of anxieties. <laughs> I'm not buying it, Heidi. No, I will. I do. <laughs> but you certainly seem very composed to me. Um, I do want to talk about one other thing, which is something you talk about that you can overprepare and you can overpractice. Can you just address that for a second? Absolutely. So I used to listen to all the advice about just prepare, just prepare. If you prepare, you'll be fine. And I was always prepared for, for law school and also depositions. I would have binders full of outlines. And I loved preparing. But I found that I hit a point where preparing too much was a detriment to me. And I would get in the room and I'd have so many bits and pieces of information stuffed into my head that my brain would go completely blank. And so now I have a, a policy for myself that... I, I set a time limit for when I'm going to stop preparing. And usually before a big performance event, I won't let myself even read through my notes the day mm. before. And I might refresh my, my memory a little bit the morning of, but I, I've learned to just trust my preparation and, and stop at a certain point because my brain, my personally, my brain needs clarity before I walk into a performance not just cramming and cramming information into my head. And for me, that works. That might not work for everybody, but for me now, that's part of my very strict regimen. I mm -hmm. stop. <laughs> I spend more time focusing on the physical. I spend more time thinking about the mental messages instead of thinking about my substance when I'm about to go in and, and do a performance. And it's, it's really amazing how actually limiting your preparation in the end can can be more helpful. The other thing that this might be an unpopular opinion uh, as well, but I also have realized that mooding myself in front of other people makes me more nervous about their performance, which is odd because you would think that if right. I right, yeah, yeah, you'd think you'd be become more prepared, yeah. But for me, I've realized at least when I'm getting really close to the performance event. I, it's better for me to just run through my process myself um, and have quiet time. Now that's more the introversion part. I 
I rekindle energy by being alone. Now, for, for extroverts, they'll gain energy from being around other people. So mooting their performance or, or having other people give feedback close to the event might be good for an extrovert. But for me, I know for, as an introverted person and someone susceptible to performance anxiety, it's better for me to just trust my system, not necessarily get feedback from other people too close to the event because that can throw me off my game a little bit. Now that's, mm-hmm. again, people will have differences of opinion about mooting themselves in front of other people. But for me, I realized that's not part of my process near the end. <laughs> and it's okay to say that to people. You know, Thank you so much for offering, but my process is I need to quiet my mind at least a certain number of hours or days before the actual event. And it really helps to understand what works best for you. You know, it's, I guess like what the macro takeaway from all this as I'm listening to you speak seems to be know yourself and that what works for someone else doesn't necessarily work for you. And it sounds to me like there are a set of voices to get rid of kind of the voices from your history and the voices from your peers, not that any are good or bad, but I guess that we each, especially as law students have to trust ourselves to know which voices work for us and which voices don't and discount the ones that don't and buy into the ones that do. You're absolutely right. And this is really important that we honor different voices because I, I think traditional legal education has focused on sort of one, not, not, yeah. But one sort of ideal model of the stereotypical, strong, powerful oral advocate. And what I've learned in, in watching a lot of students with different personality types with different oral advocacy strengths is that we all don't have to be the same. And we it's better if we're not, because right. voices bring so much more to the table. And it's really fun and, and magical when you when you see I have a class of 20 students and I I see 20 different voices and they're all going to have different approaches to the legal question, but they're all also going to have different approaches to the way that they excel in the same way of preparing for a test or a a speaking in class or an oral argument is going to be different for 20 different students in a class of 20 and honoring that helps them all excel instead of trying to have every student follow the same exact model in my experience, that didn't work for me as a law student, trying to mirror everyone else. And so now it's important for me to help my students realize everybody's going to have a different way of going through law school and developing as an attorney. And that's good. That's great. And I might not even know how to help every, every, every student, but in talking about these things, we realize what, how we can eventually help each student because we listen to what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And we can mm-hmm. be creative in, in coming up with ideas to prepare our students, not only substantively and style-wise when it comes to oral advocacy, but also mentally, emotionally, and physically because they all work together. And it's, it's, it's really transformational when we focus on all of those different aspects. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, well, any other parting words you want to offer to our students? I, I, I want to remind students again that the book Untangling Fear and Lawyering addresses, uh, is particular to oral arguments, but it's much more global than that, right? It, it's really kind of for all law school and law practice. It absolutely is because you know, it can be scary to be a law student and it can be scary to be a lawyer. It can be scary to be a client. And in our sort of strong, tough American society, we, we don't really talk about fear that much and, and honor the reality of fear. 
So my message really is let's let's talk about it. Let's be open and, and kind of vulnerable about what we're afraid of and then untangle what's driving those fears. And then we have really tangible, practical things we can do to tackle the fears that we have and become really amazing advocates. One thing I advocate for in the book is, I know we're all trying to be these strong law students and lawyers and law professors, but we have to realize that there are aspects in our daily lives in which we really are incredibly powerful. And and so step one in my four-step process in the book is about realizing other areas of your life in which you possess incredible, I call it swagger, you know, like Uh or you play an instrument or you're amazing with animals or you're a great big sister, big brother, or there's aspects of our life where we are incredibly powerful, but we forget that when we get scared in a, in a law related performance moment. So I want everyone to realize that we are powerful human beings in other aspects of our lives. And we can channel some of that strength into our lawyer, our law student and lawyer personas as well. Wonderful, wonderful words to end on. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And so I guess the takeaway is I prepared, I worked hard, I deserve to be here, and I have a voice. So that's my discussion with Professor Heidi Brown. Her book, The Introverted Lawyer, A Seven-Step Journey Toward Authentically Empowered Advocacy, and Untangling Fear and Lawyering, A Four-Step Journey Toward Powerful Advocacy, are available on the ABA website and at Amazon.com. I highly recommend both of them. You can also look at our liner notes for this podcast, and we have a link there. Thanks, as always, to www.bensound.com. And for those of you practicing for your first moot court experience, we wish you the best of luck. Have a great day.